Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 461 with Darren Alemley. The key to success here is having a human element to automation and continuously executing with that personal touch on all of the customization elements that we're focused on. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What's sorcery? Sorcery is AP automation, digital invoicing, and time and money saved. That's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire accounts payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to getsorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest darren alemley darren are you feeling unstoppable today Oh, absolutely, Eric. I am feeling unstoppable. Yes, that's what we like to hear. So a graduate of the University of Central Florida and the University of Chicago, Darren Alemley is a serial entrepreneur. His first entrepreneurial success, Down Beats, set Darren up to tackle his newest entrepreneurial adventure, Square Roots Kitchen, a fast casual restaurant using technology to give customers the ultimate meal customization experience. Their theory is that an automated restaurant, if done right, can give customers or sorry, consumers an easier and more personalized experience that's fast while allowing to operate with minimal staff members. And I'm really excited for this conversation. I'll be honest, I started off really excited. I got a little nervous and then I got excited again. And the reasons why is because uh, after doing some a little bit of research before uh, the interview, I, I saw that you were, uh, I thought originally you guys opened in 2014. And I started digging a little more and I realized you guys opened like last month or two months ago in, in January. So um I really try to keep a high standard of guests here. It's called a melting pot of mentors for a reason. And then I, I, I let Darren know. I was like, hey, man, uh, I'm not sure. Like, I just I thought you were open for four years. Usually mm-hmm. my, my hard, my limit is five years, but I made an exception. But you've been open for two months. And then I really started uh, seeing the big picture and what Darren's put into creating this uh, this restaurant that's very technological technologically driven uh the the research that darren has done to get to where he is today and just his experience as a a financial person and uh his i i I just i'm really excited for this conversation just because i feel like you're going to really bring unique perspectives that my my audience hasn't really seen yet so we're going to treat you like an authority on technology i can't wait but before we really dive into your story and what you've learned over the past four years uh getting ready to launch this project let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra, what do you got for us? Um, for me, it's always been the same one by uh, good old Bill Shakespeare. Uh, Above all else, to thy, to thine own self be true. Um, if you actually, if you actually listen to it in the uh, the context of the play that's in, it doesn't really speak as well. But I've always found that, that as I've gone through my career, uh, you have to be true to yourself and know you know you, you yourself personally and your strengths and weaknesses. And uh, and do what's passionate for you. And if you're not doing those things, then you're not you're not going to be happy in your life, and you're not going to succeed. So let me ask you this: How have you been true to yourself with Square Roots Kitchen? Well, 
I, you know, Square Roots is really interesting for, for me from a personal perspective because uh, I grew up all working in restaurants all throughout my younger years. And uh, but that was all as a means of income to get through college, to get a finance degree and to move into a career in investment finance. So for me, uh, Square, the idea of ever getting back into the food service industry was was crazy. I, I really just never thought that I would be doing this again. But um, as my career progressed and in finance, I, I had a very robust knowledge set around analytics and uh, you know the, the business plan and all that stuff. Uh, and then as I moved into entre- the entrepreneurship space with my first company, Downbeats, uh, we got more understanding around the technology sector and even had a little bit of specialization of that when I was working in hedge funds um, as uh, I was sort of you know, token millennial on a, a team of older people and uh, tasked with all the tech stuff of, of those requirements. Um, when I really saw the pain point here, it was a weird congruence of my skill sets of food background, uh, strong financial background that can manage a, a, low mar- a low margin business like this, and then the technology literacy to really understand what was needed from that side as well. So um, it's one of those things that I had I drawn this up years ago, I thought would have said I was crazy. But once I really saw what the opportunity was, it, it fit like a glove. Cool. Uh, so you kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, what sets you up to be able to tackle a project like this? Um, you were a hedge fund guy. Uh, anything early on, like the hedge funds, the the uh, those experiences with that that you can drop on us right now? If I sound a little wonky at all during this conversation, it's because I'm going on 16 hours. Uh, I'm trying to get to a night schedule doing these interviews. So I apologize to the listeners in advance if I get a little weird, but I think so far I haven't done anything too crazy, have I? So far, so good. Eric. Okay. Well, we'll, 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 try to, we'll check if you do. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Um, I think the real thing that drove what Square Roots was going to become was the understanding that uh, a menu is essentially a database. And if we could build that database around a bunch of variables that a lot of people just don't quantify in their menus, so affirmative or negative relative to um, certain a variety of diets and allergies, uh, as well as uh, focusing in on calories as well as macronutrients. So um, fats, proteins, carbs, things like that, that we could present a menu to someone in a way that was very user friendly to them as just by driving it from a, a data set in the background that maybe isn't so user friendly, uh, but just merging those two together could create real, real synergies and, and, uh, value adds on both the consumer and the business side. Okay. So what, what did the, so you guys, you started Downbeats in 2012, and 2014 is when you started really doing the legwork to set up SRK or Square mm-hmm. Roots Kitchen is what we're going to be mm-hmm. calling SRK. Um, yep. So what did that that research look like? What did that legwork look like? Where did you even know where to start? You know, it's uh, it's it's with every new business idea, and I've had a few over the years, um, but this is only the sec- uh, well, the third that I've really taken off running with. Uh, another one I started kind of at the same time, but uh, both myself and my partner, Square Roots started taking off. He got hired in another job at, uh, over in Asia, which this was an Asian product sourcing business, which was so inspired because of my experiences doing so. With Downbeats, um, unfortunately, we had, to sh- we had to shutter that company just very early on though. So, you know, really n- almost no risk was taken. But with each of these, uh, Every time I get the idea, and Downbeats informed how I would do this for the future, so having that experience helps a lot. There's really no great place to start, and you kind of have to start with everything. Yeah. And that's like, it's it's pure drinking from the fire hose, and it's going to be like that every time. So, um, you know, understanding the market of what food is these days especially is, it's it's very, it's obviously a huge market. It's probably, it's one of the biggest markets out there just because every person on the planet has to eat. And the way that all those people eat, it's also different. So understanding, um, you know, fast casual versus sit down versus fast food, uh, integrating now some of the things that are so popular in some of the major markets, like your on-demand delivery service, your Uber Eats, your Grubhubs, uh, uh, the, you know, um, meal kit delivery services are big now too. Uh, and that even comes a little side channel too to things like Instacart or something like that, where people are still getting food in different ways, but they're using technology to do it uh, more and more now. And so under, really understanding how the consumers were interacting with it uh, was a, a big part of that first chunk. Uh, 
Wait, so what did you learn oh, about how consumers were interacting? Like, what do you and during this period? Like, what was the the key takeaways from that that early research on the consumer behavior? Yeah, so the consumer behavior, and this is something we're still continuing to all, just always dig in on. The user experience is so key for us. Uh, but its major markets are are definitely technology adaptive. Smaller markets are getting there. Um, but uh, you know, just I think a, a good uh, comparable stat. Uh, in the U.S., only about 15% of Americans have taken a rideshare program ever. So that's like an Uber or a Lyft or something like that. Yep. Now, if I were to pull my friends in Chicago, we're based out of Chicago. If I were to pull my friends here, that number would be 80%, 90%. Yeah, higher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so to think of that from like a macro perspective of the U.S., it's like actually pretty staggering because it's, it, you know, Chicago is not indicative of every market. Um, and so we actually, we saw another company come to market with something comparable of, of what we sort of offer, although they were, it was, they were based out of San Francisco, a company called Itza. Um, and they had a very, uh, I, I would call it a, a cold approach to the, the automation element. Um, so, you know, 10, 10 iPads, nothing really wow factor on the ordering process itself. And then all of the food comes out of a cubby. There's, so there was really no interaction between front and back of house at all. And I saw that. And I actually, as we were still sort of doing some of the, uh, the organizational elements, uh, we, I think we were, uh, yeah, if I remember this correctly, we were about three months from getting to market on our catering side. And then when I went and visited uh, that one of their locations in San Francisco, and I was immediately just sort of thrown by the idea of, you know, there's no, there's no interaction here. Like, what do I do if I have a problem? If I... Like my orders messed up, like anything. I mean, there's so many factors that go into a meal being made. Um, so what we sort of wanted, wanted to do was understand that people still want a human element involved in their food, but you can take away that one-to-one ordering process in the cashier still by and coming through a certain type of architecture, a certain kind of layout, and really blending the fact that you can drive people to those kiosks, but still have one person there greeting, saying hello, answering questions about the menu and those sorts of things. So you're not just getting people immediately saying, Oh, I don't want to order from a computer. Yeah. It kind of um, reminds me of uh, the like grocery store at the self checkout. Like you have a mm-hmm. self checkout, but you've got that one person that's there floating around. Uh, exactly. If you need it. So you're not completely lost and like, like helpless if, if, if you need that help. Exactly. Gotcha. 100%. And especially early on, um, you know, our soft open, we noticed within day one, hey, we need to take this thing. We need to adjust some things here, talk some people through things. So, you know, you need to make that consumer experience on the on the digital front as, uh, you know, intuitive and uh, as intuitive as possible so that any anybody can walk up off the street and use it. Um, but even then, there's going to be questions. I mean, we have an expansive menu. So uh, even if for a first time user, there's going to be a, Oh wait, you know, is, is the, the, you know, what serves, what served hot or, um, you know, is there something in this? And then, you know, we can sort of guide them through the the program a little bit, especially with some of our cooler features like dietary filtration and all that. Um, but they were not necessarily going to know some of that stuff from day one. So, uh, so you, you didn't really start diving into the tech until later on, right? Like first you wanted to develop the menu, the food, and that started around 2014, right? 2015? Uh, yeah. So end of 2014, we started with the food. But the vision was always having all this integrated. It's just, uh, you know, with a limited amount of resources at that time, no capital raised, uh, we had to make the choice. We could build a platform with no revenue and go try to raise money like that or build revenue and uh, sell the idea of the platform and go raise money like that. Okay, so that's um, why you chose that order of mm-hmm. uh, going focusing on the food with the catering, scaling of the catering, so you get the cash flow. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, and you know, certainly as a, it depends on your. This also depends on your market a lot, especially in the U.S. Chicago is a tough market to raise capital in. Uh, revenue matters a lot here, and even then, um, a year into operations uh, with over a quarter million dollars in revenue off of pretty much a bootstrap budget. People, we still got a lot of, eh, I don't know. Let's, let's um, wait to get into raising capital. Uh, Absolutely. I like, okay. uh, like to say chronologically, and I want to know uh, how you develop the catering uh, and maybe any advice okay. you have on uh, scaling into a brick and mortar with catering. Totally. Um, so 
You know, for me, it helped a lot that I have a pretty strong, strong culinary background. I, when I was working in restaurants as a, uh, in my younger days, I, I worked at a lot of different places and there was a combined between the ages of 15 and 21, you know, six years of experience in there. Pretty much always had a job in a restaurant um, during high school and college. Okay. And uh, usually especially I spend at, a lot of time in the early conversation going over uh, the early days. So I apologize. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, yeah, no. What, what were you? Were you mostly front of house, back of house? I was predominantly front of house, but uh, at Romano's Macaroni Grill, which was, uh, I actually worked at the busiest uh, location of that, those in the country, which was in my hometown at, uh, near UC, uh, UCF, University of Central Florida in Orlando. Um, I was fortunate that I had worked at one when, in high school, and then when I went to college, got a job there, was looked upon favorably. So moved into a corporate developer role. So that was being a corporate trainer, essentially. Okay. And from there, they would all sort of let you, if you were so interested, work different different slots okay. just to get a better feel for the overall business. So I spent a little bit of time in back of house getting that stuff understood better, um, you know, don't, going through the prep, prep guidelines, going through here's what the morning shift needs to do in order for the night shift to just succeed, that sort of stuff. Um, so... I had a pretty good background overall, just really understanding how a restaurant business operated, and then also really, you know, get I got decent at recipes on my own. Okay. Um, but we did hire an executive chef to come on initially, but it was always sort of understood that his role would be helping us get some initial recipes, you know, put in a little sweat equity at first while we're get while we're getting up and running out of a shared kitchen. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the real role long term as a general manager. Uh, that's really just sort of running operations, and it's not—it's not a super creative role. It's really just nuts and bolts, get this stuff done kind of thing. Okay. Um, so from day one, it was all right. Let's see what we can do from a uh, from a, a menu perspective. So it was pretty limited. We tried to keep keep things in a way that you know we had. I think it was four of each wrap salad and quinoa bowl, which is our main entree types. We had four of each of those at first, and we did expand a little bit as. as, as kind of incrementally as time went on. We're now up to, uh, I think, six of each and then seven of the wraps, and we're adding another two of each uh, over the next month and a half or so. Yeah, but do, um, you, do you really want to go more than that? Do you think it's beneficial to have more options? Uh, no, I think that's a right around the right number. And you can prioritize and, and list some of those differently too, uh, especially in our in our structure. So we don't want to go crazy on the, on the pre-recommended, but what – some of those do is we'll add a couple of ingredients. So, for instance, we're coming out with a uh, something called a Sonoma salad soon enough. Um, we're taking some existing ingredients, adding grapes and a raspberry vinaigrette, and adding really a whole new flavor profile around something of a fruitier flavor that uh, you know meets a lot of diets and also and also creates a complementary flavor profile so that we can be getting that person who wants to eat healthy, but they don't want to eat the same yeah. healthy thing every day because that just gets boring. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing I like about your story up to this point um, that's really clear is you, you chose to start really small. Um, even though you have this grand vision, uh, so many people, they try to get that vision so soon, but you started so small with even like using a shared space and doing the catering and really developing the menu, even you like a, a smaller version of the menu and really fine tuning those things as you go. Um, so why is it so important to start super small? I mean, I'm a huge believer in the lean startup methodology. So the smaller batch you can start, the less risk you're taking at that moment. So, um, you know, the, the minimum viable product, if you're talking what a full restaurant looks like, is a half a million dollar investment. Basically. What is what is a minimal viable product? Uh, so in lean startup me- methodology, it's called it's uh, referred to often by its acronym, the, the MVP. The minimum viable product is what is the least, the least best product that I can put out there that I can start getting feedback on to refine and make better and then start to scale as we, as we do that. Yes. So for me, that understanding was let's get a limited menu out there and make sure that people want this food first. Because if they don't want the food, then the tech component is, uh, you know, it's not moot, but it's definitely applicable in a completely different way. Um, and you know, maybe we could go sell that to a Chipotle or something like that, but it does tell me that the health trend, which is part of our sort of nexus of, uh, you know, competitive advantages isn't, wasn't, just wasn't as valuable. But as we found, there's a definite need there, especially for high quality, healthy food. 
there are other players in this in the space, but uh, you know, I I say with pretty pretty high confidence that we beat we beat all of them on on quality for sure. Awesome. Uh, I mean, the other big part of this too is you're keeping your cash flow extremely low, and really when Perfect. you start with like the very little overhead operating overhead um, your cash flow is what is what's going to determine the next level of like growth like oh what can we afford and like you know you have those fixed those fixed costs uh, and you, you grow as cash flow grows although so many people are in trouble with this yeah, this industry they, they all that overhead and they just can't keep up with the overhead uh, they're hemorrhaging money um, but if you start small like you did it just makes it so much easier anyway sorry I, I'm a little off subject but all right, going back. No, to, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, you're you're starting with the catering, you're scaling. Any like big lessons learned through this process developing the food? Um, developing the food, not as much. I mean, that was sort of our our menu is designed to be uh, simple but interesting. So you know, it's more for us. It's more about developing the right components so that ultimately, when we're giving our consumers the you can build whatever you like element. Um, they can make some interesting stuff and, and keep it, like I said, keep it fresh, uh, even if they're eating eating with us several times a week. Cool. So, um, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, uh, just from a simplicity standpoint on that side, uh, that was the easier part of the menu design. It was more about how are we implementing these operations, especially with a sort of more remote shared kitchen and not really owning a space and having to wanting to implement processes that we didn't weren't able to do uh in someone else's house basically Mm -hmm. uh that that was the ongoing challenge Mm. um one side note before we move on um if you want to learn more about the lean startup in minimal viable products, uh, Eric Reese has a great book out there called the lean startup. Uh, I meant to mention that before I forgot definitely. fatigue is definitely starting to set in. Uh, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, okay, moving on. Um, so when did you know it was time to, I guess, bump it up or to, to scale the catering to move into your own space? Or, I mean, when did that even happen? Was that, how I mean, I don't know too much about the story. Yeah, so um, timeline-wise, you know, fall of 2014, we were essentially faking it before we even started selling some catering items just to prove there was at least some demand here and essentially bought them from somebody already making them. Okay. Um, January of 2015, we got fully licensed uh, to be in a shared kitchen and start making our own food. And that year was definitely a building year. Um and, you know, the first month, I think we pulled in $1,000 in revenue. But by the end of the year, we were pulling in $20,000 a year oh, wow. or a month revenue. Um, and then it was around then that the, the tide really shifted and we just saw that the catering business alone was substantial. Okay. And uh, uh, it really, at that moment, it was, it, there was still a little bit of a, a struggle of raising capital, still had to do all that and working on it and didn't have any money in the door yet. But the conversation was a lot different when you're saying, on no marketing with just using existing channel partners and having no tech, none of our, this technology that we're talking about built yet, we're already pulling in this, this many meals sold a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was then really that we, I felt very confident in selling this, this vision. Um, so, so I'd what, say about, about a year in. So like 2015 uh, is when you really start uh, getting more proactive about uh, getting investors, right? Is that, is that what we're saying? Selling the vision? Yeah, exactly. So what advice do you have for us for selling the vision? How do you sell the vision? Um, I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of it's confidence. You got to go out there every day and, and, um, you're going to hear a lot of no's or, or, you know, work worse is you're going to hear a lot of, let me think about it, which really means no, but you know, you're, you're getting strung along a little bit. Um, so you just have to always, always be ready to have that next conversation, always be ready to be introduced to new people. And assuming, assuming the facts continue to back you up, never, never lack that confidence of knowing what that can be. Um, I mean, there were certain, certainly moments, uh, right. Especially in that beginning of the year of 2016, whereas we were doing real business, uh, uh, I had 10 employees. Um, and, but I was still having to be on the ground every morning and, especially in a shared kitchen, you know, we have a busy day. That really means 6 a.m. start. I'm running all the logistics. Uh, I'm still trying to market this company. So I'm working a regular 40-hour 40, 40 week just in operations. 
but also trying to work on the technology development where we could afford it, um, additional growth opportunities where we could afford it, and trying to raise capital. I, I was definitely reaching a point of exhaustion. Um, but fortunately, we found um, our, our initial push in the financing realm was through an SBA loan, which got committed in early March of, uh, of that year in 2016. And from there, it was the, the rest of the dominoes really fell into place um, just because when a bank decides to underwrite you, they've done a lot of their due diligence. So it, it really validates yeah. validates the equity raise for sure. Absolutely. Um, so after you got the uh, the bank to validate you, were investors, were you still looking for money at this point or, or did you have the money you needed? Uh, yeah, no, at that point, we actually didn't have any, any equity raise until we got we were underwritten by the bank. Okay. Uh, but from there, um, we got the first check, next first checks in pretty much immediately. And the, the remaining checks came in basically once we found a, a specific spot, which was a, which is a reasonable, uh, concern for many investors. And I totally get it that, okay, I, I like the vision. I like all this, but this is still a restaurant and location does matter. So yeah. where, you know, where is this going to be? Yeah. Um, and we ended up really lucking out with, with the space that we got. Um, it's in a really very trendy neighborhood in the West loop of Chicago. Uh, Tons of tons of foot traffic around the area. Tons of residential going up, and we have proximity to our existing um, catering business. So you know, transport times are way lower. Uh, it's so much easier. And now that we're up and running in that area, what we've really noticed is we're we're nailing it on last minute catering now. So we have we have a couple of our channel partners as well as a couple of specific clients that they know that they can email us. You know, today even uh, had nothing on the books tomorrow besides a couple of promotional events. And then all of a sudden have four catering events just because they're like, can you do this? Of course we can. That's what we're here for. Awesome. So I'm curious, how much money did you think you would need to pull this off? Um, I mean, in terms of like one single location or in terms of... Well, raising uh, the initial capital to then, oh, you know, start investing in the tech and investing in the location. Like, What was the it. number that you came up with? Uh, our number was... Uh, had to have four hundred thousand dollars, like okay. for sure. Um, more than that was definitely gravy and would have been better. Uh, and we ended up at four thirty-five, and even that's that ended up being you know pretty tight. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and was that built? Yeah. Did you build in like a little bit of a cushion? Like what was the number? Like the I mean, a lot of people have heard, learned that you know whatever you think it's going to take, add X amount. Was this after <clears throat> adding X amount, or was this what you think you needed ex- exactly? No, that was, we built in a, a good bit of buffer and with each space that we looked at, um, you know, we're getting quotes or at least advice from architects and things like that of what is, what do you think this is going to cost for construction? And especially with rep, with a, a commercial build out is so, so different than any kind of residential real estate interactions that anyone's ever had that you people are used to. Mm-hmm. Um, actually over that same summer I went out, I, I had had to go rent a new apartment, went out one day, rented an apartment <laughs> done. Uh, and the way that commercial works, every deal is so unique. I have to evaluate the terms, terms of the contract itself. Are they giving us any rent abatements? Are they giving us any tenant improvements? Are they, uh, you know, what does this location look like? How does it look like for foot traffic? Is this a, especially in Chicago, loop-specific locations basically aren't open for dinner. So as uh, commuters leave and no one's really in the, the downtown area, those can still be extremely lucrative, but you need to understand that you need to be covering so many uh, customers in a three-hour window or you're not going to fail pretty, pretty quickly. Um, so understanding that, that flux of dinner versus evening and all, and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a lot of idiosyncratic uh, modeling on each location that we looked at, and we looked at probably fifteen different spaces. So it it was not a uh, not a short process at all. Okay, um, so we've talked about uh, raising capital. We talked about uh, location, the importance of location. Um, I think it's. Is there anything else we want to talk about before we start getting into the research you did on tech? Because you really didn't start doing the research on tech until later on before the opening, correct? Uh, no, I think we were doing that throughout. Um, okay. It was definite, a definite ongoing conversation. Uh, but again, it's where do you start? Everywhere. So, you yeah. know, it's we need to start getting revenue. Yes, we need to be investigating the tech. Yes, we need to be working on our, all of our connections with channel partners. All of those things are happening at once. Yeah. Um, and it's just there's no there's no 
like right place to start necessarily. There's just different approaches to doing it, really. So before we really start talking about how you decided to work on what tech, what tech you mm-hmm. are leveraging, why don't you mm-hmm. paint the picture of what the operation looks like? Uh, how many people okay. do you have on staff? Where they are during uh, you know business hours and like what that mm-hmm. that flow looks like, and then start talking about the tech that you chose and why you chose it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our ideal operation is a fully prepped kitchen that is starting at 11 a.m. to 8, 8 p.m. and is can be run by anywhere between two and three people. Um, and th- that's the sort of ide- uh, ideal uh, store-only operation. So everything's coming in through, all the orders are coming in through a series of tablets. Eventually, we'd like to integrate some of our channel partners like Uber, Grubhub, and DoorDash are the ones we use right now. Integrate those into our own our own system so that every ticket's coming out on the same printer. Mm-hmm. But right now we're having to kind of kind of deal with some other people's tech as well. Okay. Um, so so those two people, so, where are they? Or those three people? So essentially, you've got one person at the beginning of the line, and they're st- starting tickets. Uh, the way our system works is a if you were to come in and place an order, or place an order on our app or our website. So we have you know three different channels essentially that someone can order directly from us. Um, in addition to those other channel partners that I mentioned, uh, a ticket comes out at the front of the line and it says exactly what's on each item. So it includes even for, you know, one of our SRK favorites, like the Southwestern salads are bestseller. Uh, even for that one, it's saying exactly what's on it. So we can have somebody that's relatively low, low trained come in from day one. And as long as they can really read and make sure that they're, uh, relatively organized on what's going into stuff, be making at least one salad at a time, if not more. Okay. Um, at the end of the line uh, is the expediter, and that person is bagging bagging and tagging, essentially. So they're going to finish. Usually what we kind of try to do is get that first person. We have a hotline, so that side's starting with you know the hot quinoa, hot proteins, chicken, steak, pulled pork, all that stuff, and then pushing that over to the cold line. And maybe they'll get the cold line started a little bit, but then that expediter can really finish off with just throwing a little cheese on top and putting some sauce on it, putting putting the lid on, and also affixing that same label, which includes the customer's name uh, as well as nutritional information. So there, the customer can then know exactly what they're what they're getting as well. Okay, and then I'm um, assuming. Sorry, keep going, keep going. Oh no! Uh, then that item goes in a bag, uh, which you know also in a, uh, expediter also needs to add in any sides or anything like that. And then hand it to the customer, and that's really the the operational experience around on order from us. So two two people back of house, one person front of house, being the floater in case there's help needed. Exactly. So that expediter, yeah, exactly. That's their that's their role too. So they can be popping out to the to the kiosk to help people in need. They can answer the phone, all that. They don't have gloves. Uh, they don't necessarily aren't or aren't necessarily wearing gloves the whole time. Mm-hmm. Whereas that person on the line has gloves on and is ready to just be making stuff all day. So when you have that third person, where are they? Are they kind of like maybe uh, in the middle between the, the packager or the, the uh, expediter in the, the beginning of the line? Exactly. So that's the volume periods, right? So we really, for us right now, that's lunch dinner. We can kind of run with two and, and one person can kind of come up as orders, um, you know, Maybe they can be doing some prep and then come on the line when we get a little bit of a rush kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But lunchtime really right now is is that focus. So two people on the line, um, everything's again ideally everything's prepped and we're because we've got such a an ongoing operation now with additional catering and all that, we're able to really run like that now. Whereas back in the shared kitchen days, uh, we're paying by the hour. We don't know what's coming in and we didn't have any retail focus. So. Um, you know, it was a lot, it was much tighter on the schedule there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think we got kind of painted the big picture of how this is flowing. So let's go back to the tech part mm-hmm. of the conversation. Uh, yeah. what did you decide on and why? Well, so we ended up going with a proprietary system mainly because nothing that we found out there could build a database quite in the way that we wanted it to. And, uh, I, I didn't think that this was incredibly difficult, but in order to get, the transparency that I know consumers de- demand these days, really. Um, it was, uh, there, there was nobody out there that was really doing what we were doing. Um, and that's really when I ended up partnering with uh, my, my now CTO, Jason White, um, who owns a technology company called Kitely Tech here in Chicago. Um, they have a pretty, pretty big team of, I think, they're at 70 developers now. Um, 
and they do, they've done work for a variety of different startups, uh, Fortune Fortune 100 companies, and everything in between. Uh, but it was really then that, you know, he he and I had been friends for a while, but and we both been working on separate projects. Him on Kitely, me on Downbeats. But I think he saw in me the, uh, you know, the understanding of I wasn't approaching this from a pie in the sky. Uh, you know, vision. It was this is this is all laid out, and I've here's here's the business plan. Here's the model. Here's all the, you know all my predictive analytics. I even have the database basically built in Excel, but that's not really a, a user formatted uh, experience. Um, that's when we started building the technology platform, but that was really customized to us. Um, and so we were we definitely looked around the markets though and understood what worked for some people and what what didn't. So. Um, so I'm kind of curious. Uh, a lot of people, when they're, I mean, is there going to be a side off, like a spinoff business? Are you developing this tech so you can test test the concept, and if it works, you can then market this technology to other people who want to build similar platforms, or do you want to hang on to this in kind of just like isolate it for your own personal use? Um, we definitely we're open to the idea of that. I think that it's not something that we uh, package for a smaller company or a direct competitor. Um, but I think as with anything, Jason and I are, are entrepreneurs, uh, everything eventually has a sale price. Um, and you know, we want to prove this and manage it as a, with the understanding that if we can continue with this business and it can pay dividends to us every year, then that's a valuable business that we should hang on to that. But if the, if the right player came along and saw that what we were doing is really giving consumers a better experience, cutting labor costs dramatically, and, uh, uh, you know, not to mention is patent pending in a couple different varieties. So, uh, they could, probably could build something themselves, but you know, for what, what it would really cost them an effort and research and all that, they could buy us for probably, you know, pennies on the dollar relative yeah. to think what a McDonald's or Chipotle or somebody like that would do. So what's unique uh, about, that's certainly, yeah, sorry, keep going, keep going. No, I was just saying that's certainly a conversation we're we're open to having for sure. Okay, so what's your tech look like? What what things did you take into consideration? How does it function, and why did you choose that way of functionality? Totally. So I think the di- the dietary filtration and real time nutritional transparency are really what drive the consumer experience. So if you were to come in and say that you had a gluten free allergy, all of the variables in our in our system, um, you know, a dish is ag- an ag- aggregated variable. So our southwestern salad is just lettuce, chicken, the other ingredients, pepper jack, and a cilantro lime vinaigrette. And we're aggregating all that up in a variable sense. And at the top, you're able to say, is this low carb? Is it gluten free? Is it vegan? Etc. So what we're able to do is allow what what is 50% of Americans are on a diet at any given moment, but that diet varies dramatically. So for some people, that's vegan. For some, it's gluten-free. For myself, actually, it's low-carb, which was a big inspirer in this business. Our system allows you to come in, click a button, and know exactly what, what, what is good for you, and specifically for you. So that's what's really giving that personalized experience. So the first option when you get to the kiosk is, what are my dietary limitations? And then once you start selecting these buttons, it's like eliminating items from the menu and then giving you the options. Exactly. Well, I, I will. I will say it's it's integrated in a way that um, you know our our goal around this technology and especially with the ordering process is to minimize clicks and makes it make this as easy for anyone off the street whether they have a diet or they don't to order. So it's an, it's a visible option um, for diets and allergies, but it's not necessarily asking you to click through that to get to it. Okay. And I think that's that's a that's a key thing that we're always focused on is minimizing the amount of things that someone needs to click on to get the information or order, even if it's something that they want to order immediately or if it's something they really want to dig in on and understand how does this work for my vegan diet or something okay. like that. So let's get Ariel real quick. So the, as far as the tech goes, uh, what are like the, 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 just list off like the key tech components you have just so I know from like a bird's okay. eye view what gotcha. we have to hit. All right. So we have the ordering platform, which I think we've touched on a, a, a decent amount now, but uh, back of house ex- expediting app. And uh, we also have an admin panel that uh, we can use to add items on the fly, custom- customize new, new specials, that sort of thing, as well as a delivery app, which uh, uh, not only can track the delivery person, 
um, but also is giving that delivery delivery person, much like an Uber Uber driver or something like that, all the information right there on their phone and it allows them to have attribution for tips and delivery charges and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So um, yeah, the, the back of house uh, expediting uh, technology, mm. uh, there's one other one that you mentioned that then the delivery app in the front of house kiosk, which we already covered what was the part I missed. Oh, sorry. That was the, uh, the admin panel. So that's essentially an administration uh, tool in the back end. So that all those variables that are going into that database, we're able to adjust um, or uh, critique or what have you. Give me some examples of the, the variables that are going into the database. So for instance, um, we want to load up a new sauce. Uh, I can go into the admin panel and say I want to add a new SRK ingredient. And that ingredient, as we're going to be rolling out in a couple months, is our uh, raspberry balsamic vinaigrette. I can then assign on each of those items um, what is the calorie content on it, what what is this affirmative or negative for all of our given diets and allergies, and uh, also attribute cost basis. So we're able to also track in real time. Once we assemble an, an item, what is the food cost on that? And then thus, what should we be charging on this? So we're able to focus on price as well. Okay, cool. Um, we're also able to uh, adjust images. Uh, we have um, you know really readily accessible guidelines in there. So, um, for instance, we're adding a new uh, we're adding a new salad as of uh, about a week week from now. Um, getting all those images in place, aligning the, aligning the, aligning them in this uh, backend, and then that's that's able to then interpret across all these different um, interfaces: iOS, Android, mobile website. Uh, desktop website as well as the kiosk it's able to give the same same experience uh across all platforms okay cool uh mm-hmm. i just realized we forgot to go to break to thank our sponsor so let's do okay. that now and then i'll come back uh with some more questions everyone loves processing invoice after invoice it's the best <laughs> not really just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 800 Six six eight three zero zero six nine one. Mention Restaurant Unstoppable and receive ten percent off your first three months. And say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member, FDIC. All right, we're back. And, uh, I'm, of these four different, like I guess we'll call them, like segments of technology: the back of house expedite app, the admin panel, the delivery apps, and the, the front of house kiosks. How much? How many of these are proprietary? All, all of them. All of them. So okay. we're yeah. And now again, we looked around the market and we saw what was good and what we didn't like from other people's 
um, you know, what, what, what's working out there in the market and, uh, uh, you know, kind of we're able to pick and choose some of the best things that we like. So, so what was working you know, out there in the market? What was it that you wanted to recreate? Like what were the, the key aspects of that was working in the industry? Well, I think the one thing that wasn't working that was, and this is really the thing that we're trying to solve all the time is the customization part. So it's just so hard to customize a meal, um, whether that's in person or through a digital operating platform. Um, you know, one, one, uh, app that we, unfortunately is no longer in the market. And I say that unfortunately, because I actually really enjoyed their product is uh, sprig, which was here in Chicago. Um, they had a very, very cool looking app, but there was no customization to it. And that was just part of how their business model worked. It was, they make five things a day. They have a team of delivery people roaming out there and that with hot bags and those things are going to arrive you really well or really quickly. But you know, while I could eat as a low carb eater, while I could eat Sprig twice a week, there were a few days a week where the thing that it was either the same low carb option from last night, which I didn't really want, or uh, there was just no good option at all, or they were sold out of it. Okay. So one way, one way or another, um, you know, that wasn't an everyday uh, function for me. So that's really what we were focusing on in terms of that side. I think on the delivery side, uh, you know, there's there's a certain especially being in a big city, there's so many different options around these right now. So Instacart, Uber, DoorDash, Caviar, um, Foxtrot, whatever. Um, what we were able to sort of do is just see what the, there's sort of a baseline expectation around the delivery side now. Um, you know, time-wise, notification-wise, uh, tracking, all that sort of stuff that we get understood that we have to be at that level in order to be a player. Um, and so on the delivery element, I think there was a lot out there that it's just like, Hey, you got to be here because everybody's here. Um, but on the on the ordering side, what we saw was uh, a lot of a lot of opportunity to be better than people just be, because of how we were structured. And then tying those all together, though, um, really, I don't think there's very few people using kitchen display systems quite in the same way that we are. Uh, so it's integrating the ordering into the into the operations into the output. So it's really a, a, a full circle machine for us. Okay, um, so you are using outs like um, you are outsourcing the delivery services, uh, but you haven't quite integrated those into your technology yet. Is what I picked up from earlier. Yes, exactly. So we have a delivery partner who's a local company that does our deliveries. We're doing everything within two blocks ourselves, okay. and uh, just kind of handling those as you know, sort of Jimmy John's esque of just walk it over, um, and that's especially for that near near area uh, group is really powerful just because they can have a meal from us in 20 minutes, basically. Okay. As, sorry, so, go ahead. No, it's, it's cool. So some of the things I'm really curious about before we call it a conversation, we wrap up are the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, typically, um, you know, you're, you're shooting for specific uh, percentages when it comes to labor and food and mm-hmm. all this, but when, when you, I'm, what is your labor percentage? I'm curious. So it, obviously that varies by sales. Um, so on a good, good busy day, we can get into a twenty around a twenty percent labor cost, okay. and that's really our target. Okay. Um, and alternatively, on the food side, we're getting that around thirty to thirty five percent, depending on the week. But our goal is to not sacrifice on that front. So okay. we're pri- we're pricing accordingly, um, but we're not we're not uh, sacrificing on quality ever. And that's that's sort of our our tenet. We're using technology to reduce labor. And, and helping to optimize that side. It's helping us manage our inventory so we're not wasting food, but we're definitely not sacrificing on the price of food because we want, we want to be offering a high-quality product. How, how is it working so far? You're, you're, you're two months in. Like, what mm-hmm. is it looking like? What are, what are the numbers looking like? Um, I mean, we, as, as I think, we could definitely be busier. Um, we're only adding around $30,000 a month in revenue from the store right now. Um, and that def- we definitely need that to be substantially higher to, to really kind of net everything out. But that's at a break-even level for us already. So two months in, we can basically be cash flow positive or pretty close to that because we have all that existing catering business that is another thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a month. Um, so you know, the goal now is to just build that brand awareness in our neighborhood as well as as we have start to roll out that, that apps, which really just got out this week of getting people onto our own platform and away from uh, the Uber Eats and, and 
DoorDashes of the world. And that's a challenge. That's obviously going to be an ongoing challenge. Yeah, I mean, the, the big reason why I was interested in this conversation, uh, obviously, to see how, how you, you built this, what technology you're using, what choices you were making, which we got some of that. But I'm really interested in, in knowing, um, I mean, there's obviously a, a huge struggle in the industry right now uh, with finding people and uh, creating a solutions to handle the the shortage of uh help right um mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm curious to to know if if more people are going to going to be adopting this model of having minimal uh human pulses in the restaurant to compensate for this this challenge of finding uh you know te- um passionate qualified people to work in their restaurants uh do you think that this is going to be something that um we see more of Based on the prevailing trends in the labor market, I just don't see how it couldn't it couldn't be the case. Yeah. Um, you know, Chicago is a specific market. We have a we have an automatically rising minimum wage. It'll be twelve dollars as of July first year, um, and that varies across the country. But that's going to continue to ratchet up over the next couple of years. Um, every every uh, uh, summer, basically. Um, and so whether it's a lack of labor availability, uh, just to find high quality people that can operate technology and also also prepare food and serve it at a, you know, I, I think kind of that 13 to $16 an hour price range is, is pretty reasonable. Um, but we want people who are smart for that. Uh, finding exactly that, that right set is, is going to be an ongoing challenge. And so whether it's labor availability or labor costs in general, just because you're forced to price that up, that's going to really affect the lower end of that market for sure. So I think you're going to see, especially people in the, the you know, $6 an entree price point space really start to struggle as time goes on. Um, you know, I, I, every time I walk into Chipotle, I just wonder how long can this last? Cause I see 14 people running around and it's like, I mean, they, they do great numbers in every one of their stores, but they're talking, so their baseline labor costs are just so huge. Yeah. So they, they, they have to deal with that. So one of my biggest concerns with seeing more uh, restaurants that are very, uh, I guess, tech heavy is that um, you're going to see a lot of people who want that high touch business where they have a lot mm-hmm. of the, 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 the server and uh, the personalized, the, the experience of the, just, you know, the, the relationships that are, evolved i mean i personally i don't want to see that go away i think we, we need mm-hmm. more transformative relationships in this industry and i kind of get concerned when i when i see uh this tech coming in and uh, the only way that people are going to be able to compete with uh other restaurants like you is by being forced into automating their operations do you see that happening yeah, I mean it's but again this is this is an unfortunate element and yeah. you know we we want to be forward thinking about this. So it's we we are comfortable with yes, are we have are we creating less jobs in a restaurant that did the same thing did that we are doing now 5 or 10 years ago? Yes, but we're paying those people a higher wage mm-hmm. and providing more of a living wage because of it. But at by the same token from the consumer experience, we're also focused on blending the the a human element with that person in the front to talk about it and recognizing our regulars and all that sort of stuff with the automation element. And I think that having a blended approach versus that, like I was referring to Itza earlier, having that purely only technology in a cubby system ordering process, I think that's going to be the key to really seeing success and having a, an enduring brand presence there. So summarize that real quick. The key to success of this business model is fill in the blank. Uh, the key to success here is having a human element to automation and continuously executing with that personal touch on all of the customization elements that we're focused on. Yeah, and I do agree to a certain extent. I mean, there's certain things that uh, technology cannot replace and the human element mm-hmm. of just uh, being a friendly face, being somebody who knows mm-hmm. uh, your, your guests, uh, who they are, where they're from, what the story is, and just... Mm-hmm existing to care for these people uh you can't replace that with technology i mean you can uh use like data collecting to you know remember the specifics the crm and stuff of that nature mm-hmm. but it's still not the same um and i don't know like there's a certain part of me who just really doesn't want to see the human element go away uh it's just so special you know absolutely i mean and that's but that's what we're focused on open kitchen uh the ability for that expediter to step out and answer a question or um talk to you through the windows or anything like that yeah 
And, you know, we already have regulars that come into our store that we recognize and we kind of know. We also, we do a, a name uh, a scrape off someone's credit card. So we're, we, we call you by name when you're, when someone comes up and that helps us mm. as a team under, you know, really get to know our customers. So, you know, we're on a first name basis with, with many of them. That's cool. So anything we haven't covered up to this point, anything you're hoping we discuss uh, before wrapping it up? No, I actually think with that, with that last little bit, um, the, uh, you know, I, I don't think it gets talked about sort of very negatively in a lot of the press, but automation is coming in a lot of different, a lot of different ways. And I think just how you're taking that approach from a human element, both as it comes to how your consumers interact, as well as how we deal with the, the labor side and make sure that our employees are treated fairly and paid equitably. Um, I, I, I think that there's, there's go- going to be real advantages to automation to our society as a whole. Uh, going forward, but I, that's something that I just I think is very important that we we do that in a you know conscientious way. Um, I do have one more question that just kind of popped into my head sure. as you're talking. Um, what is your target for? Uh, I guess what are your the margins, the profit margins? Do you think you're going to be able to have greater profit margins with with this this business model? Like, is there like an ideal percentage in your mind that you want to shoot for? Yeah, I mean, if you look around the industry, um, Chipotle is pretty much number one in, in that number. At least uh, they were uh, the last time I, I really dug in. And they're at about 18%. Um, and then sort of industry average is around 10. I'd like to be somewhere around the 12 to 14 range. Okay. Um, and I think that's pretty reasonable given our ability to focus on the labor cost. Chipotle, their advantage really, the way that they've, they've gotten so good at, at hitting that margin They've vertically integrated on the food side, and albeit they've had negative press around that, um, but in so doing, they're able to offer a fairly high quality product at a, at a very low food cost. Um, and that's just something that for a while, at least, we're not going to be able to do, but we can win on labor because of our technology. Yeah, and you can attract onto yourself you know, really mm-hmm. great people because you have you know, so few people working for you. You can really, you know, that excess uh, margin you can put towards mm-hmm. really attracting onto yourself. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The good people. Um, cool. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, I wrap up every conversation by having my guests call somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you really admire in this industry that you believe is doing it right, that you think I should get on the show? Um, well, I wouldn't call them an independent restaurant per se, but I think the folks over at home chef are doing a really awesome job in the, in the uh, meal kit delivery space. Um, Pat Patel is their CEO, but I've also talked a lot with uh, one of their head of uh, chef operations. Her name is Paulina. Um, if you get them on your show, I'd, I'd be happy to facilitate, but uh, I think they're doing some really great stuff in that, in that realm. All right. Home chef, look out. I'm coming after you and uh, let the folks at home know um, how we can connect with you. If we have questions, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I'm sure there might be a lot of questions after this conversation, but what's the best way to kind of connect uh, maybe on social media or, or email or whatever you're comfortable with giving out? Uh, I'm sorry. Can you say that one more time? Uh, if we want to connect with you to, to c- continue the conversation, what's the best way to connect? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter myself, so Darren, at Darren Lemley. But if you want to interact with the brand at all, it's at Square Roots Kit on Twitter and Square Roots Kitchen on Instagram, where we have a pretty solid following. You can see some of our awesome food every day, as well as Square Roots Kitchen on Facebook. Just head over to restaurantsunstoppable.com slash Darren Alimli, and that's D-E-R-I-N-A-L-E-M-L-I. Uh, I'll have all the links to... Uh, Actually, there won't be any links. Maybe just a link to uh, your restaurant and your social handles uh, all over there yep. in the show notes in a summary of, of uh, the discussion over there as well. And um, Darren, uh, thanks again for coming on and sharing your story and uh, being an authority on the topic of technology was really interesting. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. There is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurants Unstoppable. Darren, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and reaching out to me and being so willing to contribute to this platform where we share knowledge. And you really did open up with your numbers, uh, how you develop this tech, and uh, interesting stuff. I mean, not my strong point, uh, but absolutely interested in learning more about this sort of thing. 
And uh, if you guys know of anybody out there who is getting creative, who's developing their own technology to serve the industry, uh, put them on my radar. Uh, I'm definitely interested in learning more about how people are getting creative to combat this challenge of finding people to work in their restaurants. And it's really becoming an epidemic. I think there's a lot of variables coming into play here. Uh, I think one of the variables is that there's so many restaurants today. It's like one of the only things that works in the retail space. So I think, I feel like the, the numbers, the, the number of people interested in working in this space hasn't quite changed, but there's such a huge demand. So I don't know. I, I really have no idea where we're going with this, but I'm looking to learn and hopefully by getting more people like Darren on the show, we will learn. And I think uh, some really good takeaways from today's conversation, obviously, is just that uh, leveraging, obviously, leveraging technology to, uh, I hate to say it, replace some of the human variables. Uh, but at the same time, they are keeping one person on staff to focus solely on that human variable. So they're not, they're not forgetting it. And I think that's kind of a, a cool thing to highlight from today's conversation. Also, just some general rules, the lean startup methodology uh, that are absolutely worth applying. Uh, you definitely need to read that book by Eric Reitz, The Lean Startup. I think there's some great lessons there. Just letting your cash determine, determine your growth and just starting with a minimal viable product and scaling it and uh, listening to the market. Uh, some cool stuff there. All right, guys. Uh, like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Twitter in slash restaurantunstoppable on Facebook. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me what you want to learn about. And I'll do my best to get those people on these topics in front of you. Uh, and keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. Uh, yeah, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>